sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, boss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. That's Brian. Hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everybody. Rumor and innuendo about your favorite songs, your favorite bands, etc., etc. Get involved. We are the Story Guys at gmail.com. And today, an odd question to start. What do you think of when I say the word carny? I think about the Fainting Goat Festival in my hometown. I don't know, man. I think about carnies. I think about gross carnies. <laughs> the Fainting Goat Festival. Yeah. I, I think about a couple things. One thing I think about is this this actor, Reeve Carney, uh, who tried to make it as a musician, sort of a musician first, uh, but then got into acting. He's on Broadway, and he's most known for being Peter Parker role in the U2 Spider-Man musical catastrophe on Broadway. Dang, I so okay. didn't watch that thing. No, Crazy. no, no. But I just know about him because 10 years ago, he had a band that he called Carney and they imaged themselves with carnival stuff, which I thought was a weird move. Uh, right. But his last name is Carney. Odd question to ask your spouse. Hey, when you were younger, did you ever work at an amusement park? And if they say yes, ask if they work games or rides. <laughs> and if whatever one they say, take the opposite one and ask them if they had a significant other in the opposite one. Cause that happened to me. And I was like, Oh, so you did games and you had a boyfriend and rides. And like, that probably is like a thing that you do. Like you go get jobs. Carney's in love. Carney's uh-huh. in love. Look at those rednecks in that truck. Uh huh. <laughs> okay. Here's the other thing I think of. I think of this. Only two things scare me. And one is nuclear war. <laughs> What's the other? Excuse me? What's the other thing that scares you? Carnies. What? Circus folk. Nomads, you know. Smell like cabbage. That is, of course, Mike Myers in Austin Powers describing, bringing light to something, frankly, that um, I think more people should be talking about, which is, you know, what do we do with the folk who work at traveling carnivals? (laughs) I don't know. They smell like cabbage. They smell like cabbage. Uh, he's not the first in pop culture to poke around and point a finger at the odd folks who often choose that life. Uh, for instance, a few that come to mind quickly and rank among my favorites, the great Rad, uh, Ray Bradbury examined the fear inspired by such people in classic works like The Illustrated Man and one of my favorite novels of all time, Something Wicked This Way Comes. You read that? Um, high school, but I do not remember the carny. Oh, well, the illustrated man, right? But it's all it's all about the carnival. So, um, okay. and, and then a few decades later, influential underground classic, it, it influenced a lot of rock musicians and artistic folks, a, a novel called Geek Love, published by yeah. Catherine Dunn. Oh, yeah. Man, I haven't put that together with this conversation. Where are we going? Are we going to get in a clown car? Is there going to be some scary, terrible we're, nonsense no, we're that go- we're doing, our, taking our listeners through some a journey to hell and back? And no, there's going to be some, like, a Krusty the Clown's going to show up? What's happening, dude? Listen, we're, we're going somewhere that you're very familiar with, okay? You're, you're going to feel good once we get there. Almost as long as there's been a film industry in this country, there have been movies about carnies, right? 1932 gave us Freaks, a flick about carnival life. In 47, yeah. we got Nightmare Alley, which is was just remade last year and almost won an Oscar. I don't know if it almost won an Oscar. It was nominated for Best Picture. Had the uh, handsome Bradley Cooper in it as a sort of unbelievable carny because someone that handsome is never a carny, right? Yeah, right. Uh, what draws us to these stories, 
right? What and what what makes us inherently not trust such people? You know, I don't know, but but there was something. I have a real example, a real life example. Okay, hit me. S- so so Brian and I live here. For people that don't know where we actually we live, we live in Louisville, Kentucky, which around the first Saturday in May, there's this gigantic horse race that yeah, you may speak have heard of. of carnival. Um, so like two weeks prior to that, there's just like, you know, on a stick, food on a stick and like <laughs> lemonade and, and, the, and, and the waffle cakes and all the crap. And then there's like Morris day in the time. And there's like, you know, it's like all throwback nostalgia stuff or whatever. But those, the, the folks that run those, that run all the like the food the food carts yeah, and the all concessions, those things. Yeah. Yeah. They all had like a place where they crashed down by the river on River Road oh, here yeah. in Louisville, yeah. which was right close to where my where my daughter works. And her manager was like, You can park up here, like park up and beside where my part my car is. I don't want you parking near where those carnies are. Like that's a thing. <laughs> so so where did it come from? Okay, well, obviously it's a hard life, right? And it's not rooted in security. It means being a nomad for months and years at a time. And because of these characteristics, it I think it sort of appeals to a sort of person made up of an odd combo of like resilience and tough choices. Yeah. But just to sort of illustrate what you're saying about the perception and what, what maybe leads to that perception. Did you know that there's actually a language for carnies carnies developed their own language back in the day. It it was called Kant C A N T and it was designed to constantly change so they could keep their community insulated for carnies and by carnies, right? Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with the language, but the uh, but the name of the language sounds familiar. But I've never put it together what it actually was. So they, so how old is the language? Uh, that I don't know. I don't know for sure how far back it dates, and I don't think it's like maybe in most places really used anymore. But the fact that this existed at all sort of illustrates this us versus them mentality that has always been a part of this subculture, and I think has fascinated the storytellers of the world for so long. So I know you've already asked me this at this point, what the heck does this have to do with rock and roll? Well, we can admit that nearly a hundred episodes into this podcast, if we've learned anything, rock and roll is a little bit like a crazy carnival. Sometimes very literally, we talked about the Jim Rose circus on a bonus episode with producer Troy recently, right? So actually sometimes it does intersect all the way, but there is something about this sort of personality I start the story here today because of who we're going to talk about. The carnival was the driving force, the blueprint, the engine that drove the man who history has come to know as Colonel Tom Parker. Oh my gosh, we're talking about him? Oh, this is so great. So I'm so excited. Colonel Tom Parker, of course, the man behind Elvis, the manager who made a lot of money and most of the decisions for the king throughout his career. One of the, would you say, the most controversial figure in rock and roll? One of, One easily. Of. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, we're not really going to talk about the Elvis years today, though, right? I mean, there's a lot out there about that. We may do future episodes about that, but today I want to talk about Tom himself. Oh, my gosh. So, did, did you do you know about his connection to the carnival world? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, he is yeah. basically a lifelong carny, and that's that's the, the big headline here, is that if you want to sum up Colonel Tom, just imagine the guy working the booth, taking you for a couple extra dollars when you're not looking at the carnival. That's sort of how he lives his life. 
And man, did he take Elvis for a couple extra bucks. Whew. All right. It makes so much more sense when you think about him coming into rock and roll from that perspective as opposed to being sort of born through rock and roll or through some sort of more like legitimate business industry, right? If you think about the fact that basically a carnival barker guided the king of rock and roll, one of the biggest, most influential figures in rock and roll music. I mean, the impact is just unbelievable when you really think about how much Tom helped shape what we come to know as rock and roll. And it was shaped by a guy from a carnival. And and he, you know, he, he really lucked into it because he had a client before Elvis, right? He had a couple clients before Elvis. And was it Ray? Was it Ray price? No, no. So he, he had Hank snow. Uh, and then before Hank Snow, he had um, Eddie Arnold. Eddie Arnold. That's what I'm thinking. Eddie of. Arnold. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because the the practical steps taken to achieve getting to Elvis start with Tom meeting Gene Austin when he is working a carnival. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And Gene That's Austin awesome. is a classic crooner who was a huge deal in the 20s. Huge deal in the 20s. But by the 40s, when Tom meets him, his career's waning. And he literally meets him at a carnival and tells Gene, I'm a carnival guy who can invigorate your career. I can, because his current manager, Gene's current manager, was putting him in tents around the country at this point in his career. And Tom said, you need, a, you need an advance man. You need somebody to go hustle for you. I can be that guy. And that's sort of his first foray. I mean, it is very much his first foray into the music industry. And it's sort of what pushes him towards Elvis. But then, of course, in between there, you get Eddie Arnold, which is really how he starts to, starts to sort of steer into it. But there is a, there is a part. We're going to talk about this. We're getting uh, ahead of ourselves. But there is a, uh, uh, some quotes that Alana Nash has in this book. We're going to talk about her. She has a book called The Colonel um, that a lot of this episode is taken from. And in that book, she states pretty plainly it was a product to Colonel Tom. It wasn't, he had no passion for music. He had no passion. He gets in sort of in country and Western and he doesn't even understand country and Western other than that it's marketable and that people will pay money for it. And so he gets into Eddie Arnold. He gets into some mini Pearl stuff all through seeing the dollar signs, not through hearing the music and being, you know, Oh, this is beautiful. I need to bring this to the people. That's, that is not what, what drove Colonel Tom Parker, but let's go all the way back to his birthplace because this guy, it's not Tom Parker that is on, is on his birth certificate. The name is Andreas Cornelis Van Kuzk, and he's, he joins Carnival Cruise despite parental protests very early. Some say as early as nine or 11 years old. Oh my God. I've never heard that craziness. First, That's insane. First, he's an errand boy, and, and then they, they let him do some barking. Um, but he, he always had this natural showman and storyteller vibe from a very young age. He has this slew of siblings and they're his natural audience. And so he's entertaining them all the time, starts his bedtime stories, grows into him, even trying to create his own carnival sideshow of sorts with the family horses, which makes his dad very mad. Uh, but like I said, the main source for this episode is the work of this writer named Alana Nash, a journalist who has a handful of books, most of which have had a decent impact three of them are about elvis the one that launched your career though in 1978 is a book about dolly parton but this particular book came out in 03 and it's called the colonel and it is about tom parker and like i said she is a journalist first so she really is about interviews site visits investigations 
all of that sort of stuff, right? There, There's definitely conjecture here, but she brings everything she has to the table to sort of lay out why she thinks what she thinks or why she's presenting what she's presenting and the way she's presenting it. She Now, here's what inspired the book, and this is really interesting. So she actually lives in Louisville, Kentucky still. <gasps> she, she started her career in her 20s, in the 70s, at the Louisville Courier-Journal as a music critic. And... But- she went to the press visitation the day after Elvis died and she saw Tom Parker there wearing a Hawaiian shirt and a baseball cap. And that yeah. fact has always stuck with her as a signifier that something was never right about the relationship between Tom Parker and Elvis. Right. Much less the 25% or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But the thing she makes clear about Tom Parker throughout this whole book is that his sideshow his side obsession, his penchant for needing to guide the program and perpetually be performing a sleight of hand, his carniness, if you will, that will define every decision the guy makes throughout his entire life. And one of Tom Parker's most carny-like characteristics is transience. Carnies are always running to the next town. They're always moving. And they're always trying to keep something else from catching up to them. And for those who have spent their lives either loving and obsessing over Elvis and those around him or researching and reporting on those subjects, they get a little hung up on what you might argue is a small detail about Elvis's career. But I consider you an Elvis head, Murdoch, and yeah. you, you've brought this up to me before. What is the thing when looking at the movement of Elvis throughout his career, his literal place and time, what's the thing that tortures Elvis fans and casts tom parker in a bad light um elvis doesn't play europe or asia or africa or australia he never tours overseas you got it you nailed it that's it this gets blamed on tom parker or more appropriately andreas cornelius van Kujic, because he was an illegal immigrant in the united states of america or as Tom Hanks said on Stephen Colbert this week, he didn't have a passport. Well, that's one way to put it. Throughout his entire career, <laughs> Presley performed in only three venues outside of the U.S., all of them in Canada. Do you know what three, what three cities in Canada he performed in? Uh, I, I don't, but you're going to tell me. I mean, it's the three I would guess because they're about the only three I know. Toronto, Ottawa, Vancouver, right? Um, okay. During... They're, they're brief tours in 57, and at the time, crossing the U.S.-Canada border did not require a passport. Now, there were rumors in 74 that there would be an Australian tour, but Parker kept it from happening and kept it veiled as to why it didn't happen. Now, hmm. there's some people who will say, well, you can't really blame the not touring in Europe thing on Parker because Parker wasn't necessarily at every Elvis show ever, but... The thought is that his need of control would have driven him to be on site, at least when launching something like a jaunt abroad, right? Um, yeah. But let me explain something about why this Tom Parker immigration thing is so weird. And that has to do with historical timing. So, Parker had two jaunts to the U.S. According to Alana Nash in this book, the first happens in the spring of 1926 and lasts for about a year and a half. He shows back up and Breda, Netherlands in 1927, because that's where he's from. I don't think I said that. Yeah, he's, he's, he's from the Netherlands. He's from the yeah. Netherlands. He shows back up in September of 27 in Breda, but sometime in 1929, he's gone again, and this time for good, and it's almost like a disappearance. Like, he doesn't show up for work. Like, they, they literally are waiting for him at his shift at his job. 
and he's not there. That's how sudden him disappearing in 1929 is. And one of the last correspondences that his family will receive from him for almost 30 years is written in English, says he has gone away, and is signed Andre slash Tom Parker. So Hmm. he sneaks into the country. I'm not going to get hung up for the purposes of this episode on how he gets into the country. There's a lot of conjecture about this. If you want to check out the book, obviously you can find it in the show notes. Yeah. You, can, you can read on some of how that might have happened. Probably a stowaway situation. Maybe he knew the right people to pay off or whatever, right? But he does somehow get into uh, the country with passports, fake documents, something. He changes his name. He makes up a backstory about Huntington, West Virginia, which, fun fact, is where my little brother was born. Huh. Where the hunting was done. Where the hunting okay. was done. And he uh, tells this whole story about how he's an orphan. This, this will follow him through his career. He'll talk about being an orphan. Now, all that is pretty difficult to navigate. If that's how you enter the country, when you suddenly find yourself in charge of a superstar who has a market abroad, that's a hard thing to figure out. But, yeah. but what makes this weird, remember when I said historical timing? What makes this weird is that Tom had a chance essentially like a get-out-of-jail-free card that he didn't take. And that's the Smith Act. Now, the Smith Act is also known as the Alien Registration Act of 1940. Politically, there's a lot to unpack there, which is not why we're here, so we're going to leave that alone. But for our purposes, just know this. It would have allowed Parker some leniency if he registered with the government at that time, even though he'd been illegal for a year. Like, it basically, or 10 years. Basically, it would have just sort of allowed him certain freedoms and they would have sort of looked the other way. They were, this was the intention behind that law had some questionable reasoning, but part of the, the good part of it was that if you were in the country, it was sort of like, okay, come on in. If you register now, we'll sort of look the other way about the fact that you haven't registered before. Now, additionally, making this no foreign tours thing strange is the fact that by the time you get to those discussions at the height of Elvis's career, Tom Parker's like, pretty well connected. Uh, Hmm. As Alana Nash puts it in her book, I'm just going to read here. It wasn't that Parker couldn't leave the country. The truth of the matter was Parker didn't want to leave the country. Through the years, he'd accumulated many influential friends in all ranks of government, including President Lyndon B. Johnson, who could have solved his problems with a single phone call. Gosh. Yeah. Okay. So obviously there's a question here. Why? Why was he insistent on never leaving America? Yeah. Like, I, I, know, I know where that guy died. He never left. Like, he never left America. Why didn't, he, why didn't he want to do it? Why didn't he take... Was there some other reason? Well, this is where we hit hyperspeed in the direction of rumor and innuendo. Oh, Are you no, ready? The, car, the carny did something bad. <laughs> he did something bad, Colonel Tom. <laughs> Also, should we stop now for a second and talk about Colonel Tom? That he he's made, a, he made he's that made it up. It's not even a colonel. Yeah, bullshit. Uh, and, and it's funny because Elena Nash doesn't even really draw attention to it in the book. She just is sort of like, and then one day he told someone to call him Colonel and insisted that everyone that worked for him called him Colonel, and that just stuck. It's. <laughs> I mean, listen. <laughs> I, this is we talk I, I, when we talk about powerful, smart, cunning people. You know, when you talk about a Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates or a Mark Zuckerberg, these people function on a different plane socially, right? And Tom Parker functioned on a different plane socially. Now, that's not a plane that I would want my kids 
or my family members or my wife or myself to operate on. But he got stuff done, right? And so it's 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 just an interesting conundrum when you talk about people, you know, powerful people throughout history. They typically were not necessarily folks you want to go hang out with. Yeah, I'm just glad that you know my wife wasn't in clam bake or the really <laughs> bad ones. <laughs> so Nash throws out a couple of theories that have reared their head from time to time on this on this why wouldn't Colonel Tom Parker get naturalized or get a passport? Like, why wouldn't he yeah. do it? Right. There's now, a reason why. One of one of the theories, which is not plausible at all, is that he was a Dutch spy. <laughs> now, we, we... And now I spy with my little eye a man from Tupelo, <laughs> Elvis. <laughs> now, we, we've just established that this guy was sort of an a-hole, right? So probably not spy material. I mean, because, you know, spies are sort of selfless. Alana Nash even talks to, like, a family member in the book who's like, yeah, that guy that guy was way too selfish to be a spy. <laughs> and when your family's saying that, that's pretty damning. Uh, there is yeah. also, there's a direct rumor about a, a Carney-adjacent fairgrounds knife fight, but the sources that first suggested that thing have proved to be very sketchy. Um, so I, I'm not sure that's it. But Nash, in this book, goes all in on a third theory that seems to line up and seems much more possible, but it is all based on circumstantial evidence. None of this would hold up in a court, but you can make, you can put a lot of things together. So we're, we're going full tilt rock and roll bedtime stories here on a theory about why Tom Parker wouldn't tour Elvis internationally. All right. Let's, let's hear, let's hear. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I love talking about rock and roll history. Not as fond about talking about my immune system and my gut health. But if you get in a situation where you are having problems with those things, it becomes very, very important. So let's get you in a place where you're not having problems with those things. I say that because Athletic Greens was created by a guy who experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on this complicated supplement routine that cost him 100 bucks a day. And he said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And that's when he came up with this. It costs you less than $3 a day. It's lifestyle friendly. doesn't matter if you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free like half of my house. Any of that is fine. This will still work for you and it's going to do things to help your nervous system, your gut health, your immune system, your energy, your recovery, your focus, all that stuff. Find out. It's simple. All you have to do is head over to athleticgreens.com slash emerging and take ownership over your health and pick up a little daily nutritional insurance. They're going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Now, back to the show. Okay, so in 1977, shortly after Elvis dies, there's this writer, and his name's Dirk Valenga, which also shouts to that name because that's the best. Dirk Valenga gets an anonymous phone call telling him some of these things that I've already told you about Tom Parker. Basically, the dude's from Breda. He has a different name, etc. Now, this isn't new news. It had been published in a few places before, but it does encourage Valenga to start doing some new reporting. And so he publishes a couple articles on the subject in the late 70s because this is after Elvis' death. And then, in 1980, he gets a letter in the mail. I'm going to read you the letter. Gentlemen, colon, at last I want to say what was told to me 19 years ago about the Colonel Parker. 
My mother-in-law said to me, if anything comes to light about this Parker, tell them that his name is Van Von Kujic and that he murdered the wife of a greengrocer on the Borkstraat in Breda. This he murdered somebody. <laughs> this murder has never been solved, but look it up and you'll discover that he, on the very night that he left for America and adopted a different name, that this murder happened on that very same night. And that is why it is so mysterious. That's why he does not want to be known. But believe me, this is the truth and nothing but the truth. It has been told to me in confidence. I've been carrying it around with me for almost two decades. And I'm glad now that I can tell you what happened. This is the truth. Thank you, period. <laughs> so, whoa, right? Right? Okay, so so we're, now we're, we're going back to the scene. 1980, Valenga's office, right? <laughs> He gets this letter. He's like, crap. I've got some real reporting I have to do now. So he yeah. starts to dig up everything he can about this murder that's now 50 years old and happened in this tiny town in the Netherlands. And that was 1980. Uh, uh, Colonel Parker lives 17 more years. Right, right. So first, the first thing he has to establish is, did this murder happen? So again, I'm going to read quite a bit from Nash's book for the next part, but here's what here's what he finds out. There had been such a murder. Anna van den Enden was a 23-year-old newlywed, the wife of the potato trader, Willem van den Enden, uh, and she had been bludgeoned to death in the kitchen of her home behind the shop that they ran. The crime was what the Dutch call a roofmord, a murder with intention of robbery, since the bedroom and bathroom had been ransacked in an apparent search for money. The motive was robbery. More surprising, the date, May 17th, 1929, did coincide with the day that Andre slash Tom disappeared. Now, there is not a single shred of evidence to tie Andre Van Kujic to the murder of Anna van de Enden. His name does not appear anywhere in the police report, and until the anonymous letter arrived at the Breda newspaper 51 years after the fact, no one in Holland had spoken of his name in connection with the crime. Yet, Nash goes on in her book to say it is very hard to dismiss this altogether when you look a little closer at coincidences. Now, if you wanted to be skeptical, most of these are all related to the realities of small town life. Tom Parker and Anna Vanda Enden went to the same church. Her husband's family and Parker's families were acquainted. And the grocery store was down the street from the school that Parker went to as a kid. And... It's known that at some point in his teenage years or middle school years, like because he, he leaves school at like fifth grade, he works at a grocery store. Now, we don't know which one, but it could have been that same one. Now, at the time, Tom Parker was known for dressing in fancy suits and jackets. And witnesses described seeing a man in a fancy suit and jacket near the scene. Another witness said they saw that same man arguing uh, in the days around that incident with a woman who fit the description of Tom's mother. But again, all circumstantial, none yeah. of this would hold up in court. No evidence. But there's a couple more intriguing things about the case at large that could cast suspicion in the direction of Tom. Now, remember, he's been training animals at the carnival on and off for his whole life. And he would have likely learned at some point the trick of throwing a dog off of a scent. The trick is pepper. And there was pepper all over the scene. This seems like a little bit of a stretch. I mean, it was mm. at a grocery store but it is sort of interesting. Yeah. Now, that's weird. The other thing, here's here's the other weird circumstantial thing that does tie up if you're willing to accept coincidences. The writer of the letter 
sends this to Valenka in 80, mentions they'd heard the story 19 years before, which would have been 1961. Now, remember when I said that when Tom left Breda, he didn't talk to his family for almost 30 years? Yeah, sure. Actually, a little over 30 years. In 1961, Tom's brother came to visit him in L.A., His younger brother comes all the way from the Netherlands. It's the first time anyone from his family has really talked to him since 1929. And according to Nash, she talks to the family members. The family members tell her that when his brother got back to the Netherlands from L.A. in 1961, he wouldn't talk about the trip. He wouldn't tell them about the trip at all. This doesn't prove anything, but it is interesting that This person says this story was told 19 years ago in 1961 around the time that this trip took place that caused some sort of rift between Tom and his brother. Could have been anything. Brothers fight about weird stuff. I've heard some like mixed reviews about Tom Hanks performance in this new movie as Colonel Tom Parker. And I don't know that people really know enough about Colonel Tom Parker to understand the character as much and i'm curious to see like i've never seen tom hanks in a movie that's disappointing to be honest but i'm curious to see what he adopted what what mannerisms and what how he adopted like is he polite is he rude is he like i'm really curious to see what he researched enough to to know about what he was like because there's film. I mean, there's yeah. you can see yeah. film of, of him talking. And it's I, I can weird. almost bet he read this book, The Colonel. I mean, this is sort of the definitive book about Tom Parker, and she goes so deep on his marriage, on his relationships, and when you talk about his affectations, here's something really interesting about Tom Parker that does sort of come into play right here in the story, which is you know we haven't talked about motivations, like what would what would motivate Tom Parker to kill this woman. Um, you know, like I said, it was classified in the police report as a as an attempted robbery. Um, it, 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 like, was he trying to get out of town and he wanted some money and he was he just thought they were gone. He was like looking for money. Um, there is a thing when he disappears, he leaves some money behind. So there's some speculation of like, was that the money um, that he just got? He felt guilty about what happened because hmm. the, the robbery went wrong. But one of the other things we talk about his affectations is. You know, when you see a, a violent crime like that man against woman, she's a newlywed, you know, was there some sort of sexual tension? And the thing about Tom Parker is that unlike any other rock and roll adjacent celeb or personality I have ever researched, the dude has no sexual history that's public. Like, he was basically, Alana Nash quotes multiple people who call him asexual. Mm, yeah asexual like he didn't have he wasn't gay he wasn't he, he wasn't interested really in women he has there are no there's no evidence of all the evidence there is about crazy stuff that he did there's no evidence of sexual impropriety or harassment or affairs even it's very very strange um especially when you think about you know just sort of his surroundings and and the power he would have yeah right right so right I mean, it, it, it's all it's all really strange. The murder was violent, and so there are questions about a crime of about the crime of passion. But I just don't think it adds up that that would be the motivating factor for Tom. So th- this is this is really 
the evidence that's out there. Again, none of it would hold up in court. It's a whole lot of hokum and, and conjecture. But it is really weird that the guy never tried to become a a guy that was driven by a profit and was getting a huge cut of Elvis's money wouldn't go overseas with him, stopped every overseas attempt. There has to be something big keeping you from this, right? Yeah, because the money would be so good. So this is how Alana ends that chapter of the book. And yet this odd tale had a postscript, some 53 years after the fact. In the course of his research, Dirk Valenga wrote to the American journalist Lloyd Shearer for help in piecing together facts of Andre's strange odyssey to America. Andre being Tom Parker. Shearer had at least a working relationship with Tom Parker, who had refused to reply to Valenga's letters. To your point, he was alive when Valenga was researching this, wouldn't engage with Valenga. So Valenga hoped that Tom Parker would answer preliminary questions from Lloyd Shearer. So that's why he calls Lord, Lloyd Shearer. So, to Valenga's delight, he gets a telephone call from Lloyd Shearer. The men are chatting about the weather, they're being pleasant with each other, but as Shearer talks on, Valenga notices that he starts to get an accent. Something about the way he pronounces his R's and his J's. And he starts to seem like he's sort of like understating his voice, he's a little hoarse, like almost like he's trying to disguise something. Yeah. But Valenga doesn't really think about it. He dismisses those thoughts momentarily. He's intrigued by all the questions about... Uh, Shearer is, is uh, intrigued by all the questions that he wants to ask Tom Parker. So everything's fine. And they say, hey, we're going to... We'll, we'll talk more about this. Let's continue to correspond. So Valenga hangs up, ends up sending letters to Lloyd Shearer, and he never hears from Lloyd Shearer again. Never hears from Lloyd Shearer again. Eventually, Lord Shearer gets Alzheimer's disease. He's unreachable. And he never hears from Lloyd Shearer or C- Colonel Parker to validate or have a conversation about any part of this story. Wow. Today, Valenga's convinced that it was not Lloyd Shearer who called him. And Lloyd mm-hmm. Shearer's wife agrees. She says, I don't think Lloyd Shearer ever called Tom Valenga. Or Dirk Valenga. Which would be why he didn't call him back, but who called? That phone call was between two Dutchmen, both wildly curious about an investigation into the murky life of Andre Dreis Van Kuch. Tom Parker called Dirk Valenga and pretended to be Lloyd Shearer. Oh, wow. I mean, it's like a grift. (laughs) Well, that's his whole life was a grift. His whole life was a grift. He was on the midway barking at the carnival his entire life. And there's all sorts of stuff in the book, if you want to get into it, where in between, in this, like, I mean, they, they have to live through the depression. He marries a woman pretty quickly over here. There's a lot of speculation as to whether that was really a sexual relationship or just a, like a, a partnership and a marriage of convenience. But he's married to her for a long time. And they run cons all the way through the depression. At one point, Alana Nash... Like compares the cons they were doing to stuff off of Paper Moon. Like, you know, I mean, like classic drifter coming through town, selling Bibles with, you know, to widows, like that sort of stuff to make ends meet. He's always doing that sort of stuff. He actually gets into the concert industry because he takes a job working for the Humane Society as a fundraiser, and he starts booking concerts for them to raise money and then realizes he can make a lot of money himself in the concert industry 
specifically in country and Western music, which, like I said, he doesn't understand. And he takes on uh, these clients and be, and and happens three clients in or something to finding Elvis Presley. Right. Which 20 plus years in his career is Colonel Tom Parker is managing him. Uh, he's calling Dr. Nick after he pulls off his toenail and asking for Dilaudid. Yeah. So yeah. that happened under his watch. Yeah. It's, you know, like we said at the beginning, one of the, if not the most controversial figure in all of rock and roll history. And, um, wow. I, I, I gotta say there's lots more we can mine from this life, but for now I'm going to leave it at Colonel Parker and the murder plot. Yeah. I mean, people could say that like Peter Grant, the, the manager for Led Zeppelin was like, cause he used to be a pro wrestler and, and yeah. he like, there's that scene in song remains the same where he goes and it looks like he's going to shake down and beat the shit out of the guys with the fake merch or whatever. And like, and he was just a brutal guy, but the idea was he wanted to make sure his clients got paid. So do you, do you know, do you know the story about, about Peter Grant and Elvis? Uh, maybe you have to refresh my memory. So it's a little blurry. So Tom Parker will never say that this is true. But there was speculation that Elvis was talking to Peter Grant about oh. coming on as his manager and overseeing, specifically overseeing a European tour. This was like in 77. Oh, that's interesting. And he had met, he had met, he had met the Zeppelin band. He'd met those guys. Mm-hmm. It was before 77 for sure. Yeah. Um, but that's curious. And I wonder if it was, before or after Zeppelin canceled that tour in 77. Right. That's right. really crazy. I didn't know that he had was looking out for another manager. I bet the, I bet Colonel Tom probably squashed that pretty hard. Oh, well, so he was also like, they start their careers or their um, relationship starts to fall apart in the mid seventies. And in the last few years, they don't talk a whole lot. And at one point, Presley's looking pretty heavily at Tom Hewlett, who also is involved in Led Zeppelin management. And they, they say like people that knew him at the time will go as far as saying that like they thought it was done or almost done. But again, the deal doesn't happen. Should, should we end with a quote from Peter Gerlinick? Cause we know he's our favorite guy these days. Yeah. 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 If we're going to talk about, definitive Elvis anything. So um, according to Peter Gerlinick, Presley and Parker were quote, really like an, in a sense, a married couple who started out with great love, loyalty and respect that lasted for a considerable period, considerable period of time and went through a number of stages until towards the end of Presley's life, they should have walked away. None of the rules of the relationship were operative any longer yet. Neither had the courage to walk away for a variety of reasons. Yeah. It's a drag. And the thing that, there's generational stuff, Brian, about this for sure is that whatever your kind of perspective on Elvis was like at some point, once that whole Vegas thing was booked, like he was a has been because he made those movies for so long that he wasn't a relevant musical character. Like the ladies, the older ladies went to go see him at Vegas in Vegas, you know? And, 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 I mean, there was a way to there was a way to turn his career around there, but he ended up just being 
I mean, he he played. He did concerts in the U.S. for sure. It's but, crazy to think about what would have happened had he stayed alive. Like, if you think about contemporaries of his, there there isn't anyone who now would be doing anything other than, you know, in the last few years of their life, would be doing anything other than a Vegas review or casinos, right? Like, unless, unless Elvis had met, the timing doesn't work at all, but unless there was a wonderful time machine and Elvis had met Rick Rubin and Rick Rubin was like, ah, we need to make a record where you sing these songs, man. That's true. And we'll just, and we'll just have the heart. We'll have the heartbreakers that's without true. Tom Petty you know, be the backup band. That's true. You make a great point. I mean, one of his contemporaries was Johnny Cash and Johnny Cash. He really did make it happen until the very end, but you're right. It was because of some really smart uh, associations with very current modern respected people and not and not being you know so hung up on what used to be and and being willing yeah. to take those risks. I mean, you know, we talked about 9-inch nails recently on the show. During that research, I read a quote about how something to the extent of Trent Reznor sort of was like yeah. I don't, it hurts not really my song anymore after yeah. after Johnny Cash did it. And initially, he was not not a fan cool about it. Not not into it at all. And then he saw the video yeah. And and then that changed the thing and that's, that's a great point. That that's where that's where he thought it was no longer his. Could could after. Elvis have had Johnny Cash's career end? That's that's a great question. All right. Let's wrap this thing up. If you want to get involved in the show, we are the story guys at gmail.com. I know you have a lot to say about Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis. Hit us up. We'll talk more. What should people keep doing until uh until next time, Mark? Walk a mile in my shoes. Uh, yeah. Keep telling stories, people. <laughs> Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.